And now we'll have our reading, um, which is taken from Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 27. And that's page 999 in the Church Bibles. So Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked, Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Thanks, Bethan. Do keep Matthew 27 open in front of you. If you're in Fusion uh, this morning, there are sheets going around. So wave your hand if you'd like a, a sheet just to help you follow along uh, as we go through. Let me pray and ask that God would help us as we come to his word. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that your word is living and active. Uh, that by your word and your spirit, you move and change people's hearts from those that would cry crucify him to worshipping the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that by your word and your spirit you change us to be more like your son. And so we pray that you do that for us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, people make big claims all of the time, don't they? I told you a few weeks ago about a big claim that I made that I could eat 10,000 calories in one day and how I failed miserably. But people make big claims, claims to be the greatest of all time. So there's Lionel Messi, the greatest footballer. There's Elvis, the king of pop. There's Muhammad Ali, the world's greatest boxer. 
All people who perhaps legitimately make claims to be the greatest. And we love to celebrate those people, don't we? We love to give them the title, to to put them up on a pedestal and say, yes, they are the greatest ever. That is until they slip up. Until they're exposed as a cheat or a fraud, not all that they claim to be. Just think of Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong, the greatest ever cyclist, seven times winner of the Tour de France. The champion who beat cancer and who stood up to drugs in sport. Worshipped by young cyclists around the world. That was until he was exposed as a cheat. When the truth about his drug taking was revealed, the public's love towards him turned to hate. 28 million people watched as Armstrong confessed on the Oprah Winfrey show. And so in an instant, Lance Armstrong went from the world's greatest to a worthless cheat, mocked and ridiculed for everything that he'd ever done. And the interesting thing is, we find a similar situation going on 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Jesus is a man who went from being followed and adored by the public to mocked and spat on. You see, when he lived on earth, Jesus made some big claims. In fact, they were more than big claims, weren't they? Claims that were unbelievable. He claimed to be the Messiah. God's king, the one who had come to save people from their sins. And he did some pretty impressive things to back that claim up. He healed people. He preached with authority. He banished demons. He calmed storms. He even raised people from the dead. And so, as a result, people began to follow him. They chanted his name in the streets. They looked up to him as a leader a hero. But at the end of his life, all of that just looked like empty words. On the cross, people looked at Jesus as a man who had been exposed as a cheat, a liar, a fraud. Jesus made big claims, but in the last part of Matthew's Gospel, the bit that we've been looking at Over the last few weeks, it looks like Jesus is just another failed celebrity, a washed-up preacher. That's what it looks like on the surface. But if you have been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that, that Matthew is repeatedly reminding us that things aren't all that they seem. Jesus is much, much more than a failed preacher or a rejected religious leader. And again, in our passage today, Matthew wants us to look below the surface and to see the reality. He wants us to look at the words of those who mock Jesus. And as we do, we discover who Jesus really is. And we discover what he actually came to do. And so the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that the one who is mocked as king is the king. The one who is mocked as king is the king. 
that we ended last week in verse 26 with the criminal Barabbas being released and the innocent Jesus being condemned to death. Jesus was flogged. And then in verse 27, the start of our passage, he's been handed over to Roman soldiers, people who will prepare him for his execution. And in verses 27 to 30, we get a picture of just how brutal, how cruel people can be. The soldiers decide to have a bit of fun with their prisoner. It's a scene of mockery, and at the heart of the mockery is this claim to be king. Just look there again, verse 27. The whole company of soldiers gather together, that's 600 or so men. And they strip Jesus naked. They take his clothes. They humiliate him. And then they dress him up in a scarlet robe, a royal robe. Then they twist together some thorns to make a mock crown for him. We're not talking about a little bramble bush. We're talking about thick, long, hard thorns that are twisted together and then rammed into Jesus' skull. Others find a staff, a royal kingly scepter for this mock king, and they stick it in his hand. And then the mockery reaches a crescendo when 600 men bow before this poor, pathetic, bloodied man and say, Hail, King of the Jews. They strike him, they spit on him, and they continue to mock him. Until eventually they get bored of their sport and they send him off to be crucified. The scene moves on in verse 32 as Jesus leaves the barracks and makes his way to the cross. The flogging and the brutal treatment at the hand of the soldiers means that he's now too weak to carry his cross. And so a man, Simon, is forced from the crowd to do it for him. Eventually, they arrive at Golgotha, the place of the skull, where Jesus is nailed to a cross and hoisted up for all to see. And again, notice the mocking charge above his head there in verse 37. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Here he is. Here's the man who claimed to be king, naked. Dying like a common criminal. And the mocking continues. Passers by shout in verse 40, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Come on, Jesus. You claimed to have the power to destroy our temple. You said you could rebuild it in three days. Saving yourself... Coming off of the cross should be easy for someone like you. If you really are God's son, if you really are God's king, show us. Prove it. And so do you see the soldiers cry, Hail, King of the Jews. The sign reads, Here is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The crowd shouts, You're meant to be God's son, God's king. The priests say sarcastically in verse 42, He's the king of Israel. All these people join together in mocking Jesus because by any normal standards, 
He is a pathetic king, a failed king, no king. But for Matthew and for us, his readers, the irony in these verses should be obvious. Because whilst the soldiers, the crowds, and the priests stand there mocking Jesus, Matthew wants us to see that they're actually speaking the truth. Jesus really is God's king. That's been Matthew's big point throughout his whole gospel. We've, we've jumped in at the end, haven't we? But if we went back through, we would see that. Right at the very beginning, in chapter 1, verse 1, we read, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Matthew begins his book by saying, here's the one. Here's the promised king that we've been waiting for, the one in the line of David, the one whose kingdom will last forever. Chapter 2, the Magi, they come to Herod and what do they ask? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Chapter 4, Jesus begins to preach about his kingdom. Chapter 13, he gives a series of parables. It's the king teaching about his kingdom. Chapter 16, Peter's confession, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the King. And then as we've seen over the last few weeks, the number of references to Jesus being the Son of Man, the one with all authority, power and glory, the one whose kingdom will last forever. You see, Matthew says again and again and again, Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's king. And then we come to chapter 27 and verse 11 that we looked at last week. Uh, Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, you have said so. We didn't think about that much when we looked at it last time, but it's a kind of yes but answer, isn't it? You have said so. It's sort of non-committal. Jesus essentially says, yes, yes, I am the king, but not the sort of king that you're thinking of. Because what Pilate and the soldiers and the crowds and the priests, what they all fail to understand is that Jesus is no ordinary king. He's no ordinary king. He is the king who suffers. This Friday, Good Friday, we'll look at the next section of Matthew's Gospel. And we'll hear Jesus cry those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22. And the reason Jesus quotes it is because it's a psalm that describes the experience of God's king at the hands of his enemies. Just listen to what Psalm 22 says about this king. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. 
People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. The psalm goes on, but do you see this is the psalmist describing what God's king would be like? He's the king who would suffer at the hands of humanity. And here is Matthew saying, this is what happened to Jesus. This is how Jesus died at the cross. As we saw last week, all humanity joined together in rebellion against God's king. And Matthew wants us to see that that all happens just as God said it would. Jesus is the king of Psalm 22, the king who suffers. But more than that, he's the king who serves. Back in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is teaching his disciples an important lesson about the nature of his kingdom. He says to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says the king's And the rulers of this world, the kind of kings the soldiers and the crowds were used to, exercise their authority out of a desire to be number one. A desire for self-promotion, self-preservation. That's all that they were interested in. But that isn't how things work with King Jesus. He's the king who exercises all of his authority, all of his power and might not for himself, but for others. He's the king who did not come to be served, but to serve. And that service would take him to the cross. Jesus is the king who suffers, and he does that because he's the king who serves. Which leads us to our next point. The one who cannot save himself saves others. In verse 41, we see it's the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law who now take their turn to mock Jesus. These are people who knew the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. They knew all about passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. These people were meant to be waiting for God's promised king. They were also people who had seen Jesus. They'd followed him around from place to place. They'd heard his teaching. They'd witnessed his miracles. They had seen Jesus, but they hadn't really seen him. Look what they say in verse 42. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He saved others, they say. Yes, we've seen it. He healed people, sure. He cast out a few demons, sure. He may have even raised some people from the dead. We'll we'll give him that. He saved others. But look at him now. Look at him now. 
What a disappointment. What a letdown. Not much of a king up there on a cross. Not much of a saviour. He, he can't even save himself. And so once again, just as with the soldiers, Matthew wants us to see that, well, the priests say more than they know. Because it was precisely in not saving himself that Jesus was saving others. If Jesus was going to save people through his death, well, then the priests were exactly right. He couldn't save himself. This is what we've been seeing over the last few weeks, isn't it? All people are guilty. Whoever we are, whatever we've done or not done, we are guilty of rejecting God, of living life in rebellion against the one who made us. And the consequence, the the just punishment for that rebellion is death. That is what the guilty deserve. But Jesus, the only innocent person to ever live, chooses to die in the place of the guilty. He chooses to take the punishment that we deserve. Why? So that we can be saved. Of course Jesus could have saved himself. Remember what he said to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane just the night before? Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus could have saved himself at any moment. But he chooses to remain on the cross. Chooses to endure the mockery of those who watch him die so that he can save them. Jesus, the king of the universe, the son of man, the one with all power and authority, chooses to die to save guilty sinners like you and me. It's been 20 years since uh, James Cameron's blockbuster, The Titanic, came out in the cinemas, 20 years ago. I'm sure most of us know, but in the film, as the ship sinks, we see rich men scramble uh, for the few lifeboats and they they shove women and children out of the way uh, to save themselves. British crew are forced to draw their handguns and fire, shouting, stand back, stand back, women and children first. It's a sad and shocking scene in the film. But I only discovered this week that the reality is very different. Witnesses who survived testify to the fact that the men hung back and urged the women and children onto the lifeboats. John Jacob Astor, the Bill Gates of his day, was on board and he repeatedly dragged his wife onto a lifeboat before stepping back and helping others. There is not a single report of a rich man fighting off women and children to save himself. So when a New York Times film reviewer questioned the choice to distort the facts of history, his conclusion was that the director to- if the director had told the truth, well, then no one would have believed them. In other words, the idea of self-sacrifice is so far removed from a culture uh, that is 
only looking out for number one. A culture of self-preservation and self-entitlement. Well, that the film producers decided that it would be too unbelievable for modern audiences had they told the true story. And perhaps that is how you feel as you read the end of Matthew's Gospel. As you read this account of Jesus' death, it's too far-fetched. It's too unbelievable that an innocent man would choose to suffer and die at the hands of his enemies so that he could save them. It's too unbelievable, you might think. But that is what the Bible claims. That is what Jesus came to do. That has always been the plan, right back from Psalm 22, right back from before then. Jesus is the king who came to die for his people. Jesus is the king who came to give his life as a ransom for many. So what should our response be? How should we respond to that kind of king? Well, first, we should trust in the cross. We should trust in the cross. Trust in the cross because there is no other way to be saved. You see, there are lots of people around today who, like the directors of the Titanic film, have tried to change the facts of history. They've made Jesus' death out to be nothing more than a powerful example of love, something to be inspired by, to, to emulate if we can, but nothing more. But remember what Jesus prayed in the garden? My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus would not have chosen the cross if there was any other way for people to be saved. If being saved was just a matter of trying a bit harder, of being a bit more loving, a little bit more sacrificial, well, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to die. But, he says, there is no other way. And so he dies not as an example but as a substitute. He takes the punishment we deserve so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be saved. And so the big question we have to answer first of all this morning is, are you trusting in Jesus' death on the cross? Are you trusting in the one who did not save himself so that he could save you? Or is your hope your trust in someone or something else this morning we must first trust in the cross and secondly we must live for the king we must live for the king the people in Matthew chapter 27 saw Jesus but they didn't really see him they looked but all that they saw was a weak beaten man and so they mocked him and people today are just the same whether it's Dawkins or someone in your office or your school playground, people still look at Jesus as pathetic, as weak. They mock and ridicule him as someone to be laughed at, not someone to be loved. But Matthew wants us to see here 
who Jesus really is. He is God's king. Not just king of the Jews, but king of every person who's ever lived. And so whilst humanity rejected him, the Bible says that God exalted him. Whilst humanity mocked him, God has crowned him. Whilst humanity crucifies him, God has raised him up to new life. The reality is that as Philippians 2 says, God has given Jesus the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the next question to ask yourself this morning is have I acknowledged that Jesus is king? Have I bowed down to him? Or am I still living in rebellion? Still acting as though I'm in charge? Still pretending that I wear the crown? And if you're a Christian here this morning, if you have trusted in the cross and you have recognized Jesus as king, then are you living for the king? Because if Jesus is your king, well, then you'll listen to his voice. You'll listen to him as he calls you to take up your cross and follow him. As he calls you to live a life of sacrifice for the good of others. A life that's not using, about using power and influence for yourself, but rather giving all that you have, all that you are, in service of others. If Jesus is your king, then he will be your number one priority. He will shape the choices that you make, the things that you do and say in the office or at home or at school. If Jesus is your king, well, well then you will face mockery and rejection and abuse. Because the world hated Jesus. The world hates Jesus. And so it will hate his people. If Jesus is your king, then, well, then nothing will matter more than pleasing him. Not out of some dry, dutiful obedience, but out of a deep love for the one who did not save himself so that he could save you. So that you could be welcomed into his everlasting kingdom. So that you could experience the joy of knowing him for all eternity. Let's pray this morning that we would see Jesus for who he really is. The king who died to save us. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you this morning that this is the reality. This is what is real. Jesus is the King, the one seated on the throne, the ruler of all things, the one who has created all things and for whom all things have been created. And Father, we thank you that Jesus is the King who used all that power, all that authority to lay down his life for others, to die so that we could have life, to be punished so that we could be forgiven, 
Father, what a king we have in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would help us to live our lives for him today and the rest of this week and the rest of our lives. Amen.